Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of Headmere's ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Drew Smith, and today we're fortunate to be joined by Dr. Aaron O'Brien, a fellowship-trained rhinologist and skull-based surgeon, to discuss olfactory dysfunction. Dr. O'Brien, thank you so much for joining us today. Drew, thank you for inviting me. Olfactory dysfunction is a fascinating topic, one that has been in the news frequently over the past year due to COVID-19. That topic is specifically addressed near the end of this episode, so let's jump right in. Regarding olfactory dysfunction, what epidemiological factors are present? Well, smell disorders are very frequent. We estimate that up to 10 million Americans may have some smell dysfunction. Um, It's sometimes difficult to get a true idea of prevalence or incidence. Some people may not recognize that they have a smell loss. It may be gradual. And frankly, just asking people how well they can smell doesn't correlate very well with objective testing. So hard to get a true estimate. We know that as people get older, they do lose smell, and up to 40% of those over 65 can have smell problems. And even over age 85, most people over age 85 have significant smell loss. Gender doesn't seem to have a big impact in smell loss, although in setting norms for smell, women generally have better sense of smell than men do. But we do know with age both men and women lose smell as they as they get older. And again, it's difficult to truly assess this olfactory dysfunction, which we'll talk some more about. And what symptoms do patients with olfactory dysfunction experience? Well, typically people will say, you know, just in general, I can't smell as well as I used to. But we like to think of it in terms of sort of a quantitative or measurable effect. And then there's sort of a qualitative effect. So when we're talking about quantitative, it's a couple different things. How well can you identify smells? If you're given an odor, do you know what it is? Can you identify it? And there's another thing called threshold. So how strong does the odor have to be for you to identify it? Some people say like it has to be really strong or have to bring it really close to my nose. And the other thing would be discrimination. Can you tell the difference between two different smells? So those are some... Um, specific criteria we think about with smell. And within those, there's sort of ranges, like it may be mild, like hyposmia is a mild loss, or anosmia, they can't smell at all compared to most people their age. And then we can also say there's sort of functional anosmia. Maybe they have some smell, they can tell there's an odor there, but they can't identify it. Then we also think about sort of qualitative or, or what's the quality of their smell. And some people not only report like they can't smell, but smells are altered. So one would be parosmia. They smell something, but it didn't smell like it used to, or it's been shifted and it's been distorted. Unfortunately, that's almost always perceived as a negative smell. Most people who come to me with the, say it's gross, it smells like a gas leak or garbage or body odor. No one comes to me and says, oh, I smell things really pleasant. And then the other one is phantosmia or phantom smells. They're smelling things when there's nothing there. And, and that's also really disturbing because they may think like, oh, I'm smelling smoke or a gas leak and there's no odor around. And so those are a couple different types of smell dysfunction. There's quite a bit of range uh, on those dysfunctions. Definitely. So a patient comes into clinic complaining of olfactory dysfunction. When you start taking a patient history, what questions should be asked? 
So we want to get a good history, and that can help us determine potentially what the etiology of their smell loss is. I want to know when did this happen? Did this happen gradually, or was this a sudden onset? And sudden onset often is associated with a virus, and we'll get to this some more. The challenge, though, is sometimes it's gradual, and they may think all of a sudden they can't smell, whereas they may not have perceived they were starting to lose some over time, and then all of a sudden they reached a threshold where they couldn't detect it. Again, we want to ask those questions like, can you just not smell as well as you used to, or are things altered? Again, is it quantitative or qualitative? I ask about the phantosmias or parosmias. We also want to ask about taste, and I'll just briefly say there's two components to taste. One is what your taste buds do, which is sweet, sour, salty, bitter, or umami, like a savory taste. Those are all those are the only things your taste buds tell you. Any flavor you get from food is actually the odor that's released when you're chewing. It goes through the back of your mouth, through your pharynx, into the back of your nose. And so that's how you can tell, okay, this ice cream is strawberry ice cream versus raspberry ice cream. That's actually the smell of the food that gives you the flavor. And if someone can't smell, they lose flavor. And so they may be able to taste it salty or sweet or bitter, but that's all they get from their taste buds, but they've lost the flavor. So I, I want to differentiate those taste buds versus flavor and smell when they say they have a taste disorder. As far as nasal symptoms, I also want to ask, do you have nasal obstruction? Do you have nasal drainage? Do you have congestion? And, um, and then we get more into the specific smell symptoms. How severe is it? Can you smell anything? Does it come and go? In the history, I want to know, again, with the onset, is there something else that happened at the same time? Was there a head trauma? Did they hit their head? Did they have a concussion? Did they have a cold or a respiratory infection at the same time this happened? Or maybe there was sinus or skull base or pituitary surgery. So that's the history. And then getting into what treatments have they tried? And we'll get to some of the other conditions that can be associated with smell loss, but things I'm going to ask them. Do you have a tremor? Do you have memory trouble? And do you have a family history of, of smell disorders? And in kids, have you ever been able to smell? And then we'll get into some other things we ask kids. Medications that they're taking. There are some medications that can affect taste and smell, especially some blood pressure medications or antihyperlipidemics may play a role and if they're smoking. And then finally, the impact on their quality of life or their professional life. Some people need their smell professionally. If they're a plumber or an electrician or a fireman, they need to be able to smell. And and then what impact is it having on them? And we'll get to some more of that, but we want to get a full picture of their history. And what are you looking for on a physical exam? So ideally, we'd want to get a good nasal exam. Um, do they have a nasal, do they have nasal obstruction? And in my office, we do a nasal endoscopy. So we want to look in this area called the olfactory cleft, which is the area between the septum and the turbinates. Is there something blocking that? Do they have an infection? Do they have polyps? And I do this, though, usually after the smell test because I don't want to put a bunch of spray in their nose and then ask them to do a smell test. We also want to do a full cranial nerve exam. And if I'm worried about other conditions that associate with smell loss, I can check for some of these signs for Parkinson's. And I don't necessarily do specific memory testing, but I try to get an idea of potentially memory loss with Alzheimer's, which we'll get to. 
You mentioned the smell test. Can you talk a little bit more about the different ways to assess olfactory dysfunction from different subjective versus objective uh, means that are available for clinicians? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things is to get an objective smell assessment. And and I went through some of those things we can test are threshold, like how strong does it have to be, um, discrimination, testing between two odors, and then identification. Can you identify what that smell is? And most smell tests use identification because that's the easiest. There are several out there. Most of them are scratch and sniff, but there's also some that have vials or these things that look like uh, markers, which have an odor in them. And basically, we're asking someone to smell something, and then usually from a multiple choice test, see if they can identify it. And it's those identification tests that we use in clinic. One of them is the UPSET, University of Pennsylvania Smell Inventory Test. That's a multiple choice scratch and sniff test. There's one that's more abbreviated, the UPSET's 40 questions. There's a cross-cultural smell identification test. The brief UPSET has 12 questions. There's also sniffin' sticks. These, these are ones that look like markers, and they also include some discrimination and threshold testing. While those can be important and are used in research, I think in the office, just a identification test is usually sufficient. Moving on to the pathophysiology of olfactory dysfunction, can you explain the basics of the olfactory system and where it can go wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's good to know the anatomy. And as I mentioned, the smell occurs in the olfactory cleft. So this is that area where the olfactory epithelium and olfactory nerves are located. It's on the top of the nasal septum, and it's between the uh, turbinates in the septum, there's some olfactory epithelium on the superior turbinates and partially on the middle turbinates. So basically, it's at the top of the nose in the middle. And that's where the olfactory epithelium is. And that epithelium is a little bit different than that respiratory epithelium around it. The olfactory neurons are basically exposed to the outside world. These neurons bind to the odorants and the epithelium around the neurons provides the protection and energy for those neurons. And I say these are the only neurons that are really exposed to the outside world in your body. And they're chemoreceptors, so like an odor or something you smell like, say, cinnamon. There's multiple different chemicals or molecules in there, and each of those different odorants binds to a different receptor nerve ending. And it's that combination of multiple receptors being stimulated that gives you a smell. So I tell people it's kind of like if you're playing a chord on the piano, you got to hit all the notes at the same time correctly to recognize that chord, if that makes sense. Those receptor neurons then transmit a signal through the olfactory cilia to the olfactory bulbs in the brain, and then your brain recognizes what that smell is. The interesting thing, though, about the olfactory epithelium and these olfactory receptor neurons is unlike other nerves in the body, these can regenerate. So there are basal cells and stem cells in the olfactory epithelium. If those uh, receptor neurons are damaged or die, they can regenerate. And so what's great about smell is that it can come back. And unlike other say blindness or deafness. If you lose your hearing, that's it. But if you lose your smell, potentially that can 
come back. So for patients, that's really helpful. The other thing I was just going to mention about the anatomy is there are also trigeminal nerve endings in the nose that detect airflow, but they also detect noxious stimulus. So like say you're smelling ammonia, your nose will tell you that you're sniffing ammonia because it sort of burns. That's the trigeminal nerve and not the olfactory nerves. And so um, some people may sm lose smell, but still be able to tell there's an odor around and that's their trigeminal nerve. What are some of the general types of smell loss that patients experience? When we're thinking about reasons why patients can't smell, we sort of break it into two categories, and it's sort of similar to hearing loss. We think about conductive loss, so the smell odorants can't reach the olfactory cleft, or we think sensory neural, there's something going on with the olfactory epithelium or the olfactory nerves. With conductive loss, the most common reason why people can't smell would be chronic rhinosinusitis. And it may be that they have polyps and so the smell can't get up there or there's a lot of inflammation. Um, and so physically it just can't get through. But the other issue is all that inflammation may damage that olfactory epithelium and those neurons. So it, that's probably a mixed conductive and sensory neural loss. But polyps is a very common reason. The other thing is maybe they've had previous sinus surgery and they have some scarring or they had some over-resection of some of the olfactory epithelium areas, or maybe they've had pituitary surgery or skull-based surgery. And so there's been some blockage or damage to that part of the nose. And thinking about sensory neural loss, a common one is a head injury. So this is post-traumatic olfactory dysfunction. When someone hits their head and they have a concussion, it's called a coup contra coup injury. So literally their brain sort of moves around in their head and where the olfactory nerves from the olfactory bulb come through the skull base and the top of the nose through the cribiform, those olfactory nerves are torn and that can cause immediate smell loss. There also can be some damage to the olfactory bulbs or the frontal lobe from a head trauma and that can lead to smell loss. Also, if they've had some injury to the nasal cavity itself, they've broken their nose and their septum or they have a skull base fracture, that can cause smell loss from a head injury. The other really common reason, and we're going to get to this at the end of, with talking about COVID-19, is a viral upper respiratory infection or a post-infectious sensory neural loss. And there's some evidence that viruses can directly damage the olfactory nerves or the cells in the olfactory epithelium around the nerve endings. And that's often, um, I got a cold, the cold got better, but I still can't smell. I lost my smell right away. Um, and this can persist for a while. And actually this type of smell loss has some good evidence that it can come back because we, as we talked about those olfactory nerves and olfactory epithelium can regenerate. Another sensory neural loss that it's important to screen for, especially if someone's coming in in their teens or early 20s, is congenital smell loss. And this is where you want to differentiate in a child or teenager or young person. When did you lose your sense of smell and could you ever smell? So there are a couple of conditions where you can have congenital smell loss. One is someone was just born without a sense of smell, and that may be the only symptom. But the other a condition is where a child may not be able to smell and then will have delayed or absent puberty. And so I will ask, have you had your period? Have you gone through puberty? Um, and that is 
associated with Kalman syndrome, and they will have hypogonadism as well. And that's due to that part of the brain that forms the anterior pituitary and the olfactory cleft and olfactory bulb not um, developing. So you want to get that history with kids. And then finally, with um, sensory neural loss, the very common is presbyopia or age-related smell loss. So like we mentioned at the beginning, by age 80, most people have moderate smell loss. And over age 85, most people have what's considered severe microsmere smell loss. And we think this is a combination of factors like having multiple viral injuries, maybe lots of medication they've been on, it could be environmental damage. And as people age, their olfactory epithelium is less likely to be able to regenerate. And so it's very common with age that people to lose smell. There's been some studies that show that older people who have olfactory impairment on objective testing have an association of decreased five-year survival. It's hard to know if that's just associated because they're more frail or they may have other comorbidities. But there has been that finding of smell loss and mortality. And often, unfortunately, we don't get any good history. We just call it idiopathic smell loss, where we just don't know. They don't have a history of a virus. They don't have a history of a head trauma. And so sometimes we just don't know, unfortunately. In general, though, um, we do want to sort of differentiate this conductive loss, like with sinusitis or polyps or tumors is another thing to think about, and then a sensory neural loss, which um, may be after a virus or a head trauma. When you're presented with those most common two options, what are some tips and tricks to distinguish clinically between the two? Yeah, so that's a good question. Like you said at the beginning, you know, with the history, you want to get a good history, you know, do you remember when it started or what was happening at the time it started? Again, was it a bad cold? Was it a head trauma? Did you start a new medication? Did you have surgery? Um, and then, you know, with a conductive loss, what other sinus symptoms do you have with that? Do you have sinusitis? Do you have bad asthma? And so a lot of that's just in getting a good history. Can you talk about the association between Parkinson and Alzheimer's with olfactory dysfunction? Yeah, that's a great question. So loss of smell is actually one of the first clinical signs or symptoms with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And sometimes this is missed. And loss of smell is almost always seen with Parkinson's and sometimes can actually differentiate other tremor or movement disorders. Just about everyone with Parkinson's has smell loss. And so like I said, I will do some sort of basic screening for cogwheel rigidity or balance or shuffling um, for Parkinson's patients. With Alzheimer's, loss of smell is really common early, even before memory loss, but often Alzheimer's patients aren't aware that they have smell loss. So I do tell patients, if someone comes in and says, I can't smell, am I going to get Alzheimer's? I say, you know, unless you specifically have memory deficits, most Alzheimer's patients don't recognize their own smell deficits. But Screening for smell loss may actually be a good screening test for Alzheimer's, potentially. That's very interesting. Let's move further into the workup for reaching an official diagnosis. What imaging or other special tests would you order? Like I said, just to reiterate, the some type of objective testing is really crucial. You want to get a score so you can prove that someone has smell loss or be able to um, give an objective uh, question about this. Because people have a really hard time giving it, being able to 
accurately predict their olfactory loss. So like we do the upset or some kind of smell test. As far as other workups, so if we think they've got sinus disease, um, if we do endoscopy, see polyps or purulence or inflammation, or they have some history that's concerning for sinusitis, we'll often get a sinus CT scan. If they've got some history or some findings that are concerning for a central process or some other cranial neuropathies or new headaches or some other symptoms that are concerning for a neurologic problem or a mass, we'll want to get an MRI. And you can ask radiology specifically to look at the olfactory bulb and the volume of the olfactory bulb. Or if I've got a child who has smell loss and delayed puberty, we'll want to get an MRI. And there's a question about whether MRIs sometimes are cost effective. There have been multiple papers that frankly came to different outcomes, whether it's cost effective for everyone with unexplained smell loss to get an MRI. So I think it's important to get a full history. And if there's something concerning, go ahead and get an MRI. You don't want to miss a tumor that's causing smell loss. On the other hand, you know, it's very expensive tests. So that's a discussion you have with the patient. There's some other testing more in the research realm, which doesn't really happen in practice, but electrophysiology or electroolfactography, or there's some other testing out there that might be an option in the future, but mostly right now just for research. Once an official diagnosis has been made, what treatment or counseling should patients be offered? Yeah, that's a great question and really important. So loss of smell can really have an impact on people's quality of life and their mood. And one thing that's super important with smell loss is safety counseling. So your ability to smell is your safety detection for smoke, gas leaks, bad food. And so I ask people, do you have natural gas or propane in your house, either your furnace or water heater, a fireplace or a stove? And I say, you need to have a gas leak alarm near that stove or in your furnace room. This is not a carbon monoxide detector. They need to go out and purchase or talk to their gas company about a natural gas or propane alarm. If they had a gas leak in their house, they wouldn't know it. And I've had multiple patients say, the gas was leaking and I didn't know it until my neighbor came over and smelled it and I could have had an explosion. So that's an important safety one. Another thing is that uh, they should make sure their smoke detectors work. They're going to have to be more careful about leaving things on the stove uh, because they won't be able to smell smoke or a fire. Also, they need to be careful about food and expiration dates. And so safety is a really important one that we counsel. As I said, it can really impact quality of life. So Smell, I think in the past, for a lot of people, is sort of dismissed, like, oh, you can't smell, you know, too bad. It's not a big deal. But smells associated with appreciating food. Um, it's associated with a lot of memories. You know, when you smell something, it can take you back to a childhood memory. It's literally directly associated with your limbic system. There's connections to your limbic system. People have a lot of social events and family events centered around food. And especially if someone cooks and that's their way of, you know, bringing people together, if all of a sudden they can't smell and their taste is affected and affects their ability to cook or ability to eat in a group, it can really affect their quality of life. I've had people crying in my office because they say, I used to cook Thanksgiving and now I can't do that anymore. So it can really impact a lot of things in their life. And again, because olfaction's connected with the limbic system, 
a lot of people, when they lose their sense of smell, feel depressed. And I tell them, you know, there's a direct anatomic reason why you may feel depressed. And interestingly, people who have clinical depression actually have diminished olfactory function. So it kind of goes both ways. And so I validate, yes, you may feel depressed or the fact that you can't smell a fire or if you have body odor can make you feel anxious. And sometimes just talking about those feelings can be helpful. And I say, if this is really significantly impacting your quality of life, it may be worth talking to a counselor or a therapist or getting in a support group so you can talk about these feelings because these feelings are real. Absolutely. I think the the safety and depression counseling is highly important for these patients. Moving on more towards the medical treatment for olfactory dysfunction, what do you typically prescribe or recommend for patients? Well, this goes back to, as you were asking about the subtypes of smell loss. So if it's a conductive smell loss, we want to try to treat the cause. So if it's chronic sinusitis or nasal polyps, um, we want to treat those and not to get into too much of chronic sinusitis management, but in general, saline rinses, uh, topical nasal steroids, even rinses in the um, rinses with steroids added. In some cases, sinus surgery may be indicated, and even newer, some of these biologics for chronic sinusitis with polyps. So those treating the sinusitis disease. Obviously, if there's a tumor, uh, we want to get that treated. When we're thinking about sensory neural loss, one thing that's fairly easy and can really be beneficial is olfactory training. So olfactory training, I tell people, I'm giving you some homework. I want you to practice smelling. And this goes back to the idea that the olfactory epithelium can regenerate, but there's also some benefit in, I guess, sort of brain retraining on smell. The idea is you're presenting different smells or sniffing different smells and you're sniffing different categories of smells and it can help people regain their smell more quickly. And there's been several studies that show that this is helpful. In general, we talk about a couple categories of smells and in general that would be fruity, uh, flowery, resinous, spicy. So like eucalyptus, lemon, rose, cloves, And some people use essential oils, some people use things around the house. And you want to smell a couple different odorants with a big sniff twice a day to reach, to have that odorant reach the olfactory cleft. It actually stimulates that part of the brain when you sniff that's associated with smell. This one's easy, it's cheap, it's low risk. And we usually say, do this twice a day for four to six months. Another option is steroids. So we can talk about topical steroids. There's not great evidence for steroid sprays, but there's some evidence for off-label steroid rinses. Adding steroids to sinus rinses may be helpful. Sometimes it's if it's immediate post-viral, systemic or oral steroids may be helpful. And I'll just throw this in now, not for COVID. There's concerns about using systemic steroids with COVID, um, but for some other post-viral loss, systemic steroids may be helpful. And then there's also good evidence for omega-3 fatty acid supplements. Uh, 1,000 milligrams twice a day in some studies has shown to be helpful with improving smell loss. Regarding prognosis, what outcomes or expectations do patients typically experience? Yeah, that's a good one. And it's, it's important to talk to patients about this. So unfortunately, with, say, a head injury, if they've completely lost their smell after a head injury, the likelihood that that's going to return is sometimes fairly low because of damage and scarring 
those nerves aren't able to make those connections through the cribriform. Some people can, but the prognosis is not great. If it's chronic sinusitis and say they tell me like, oh, I took some prednisone last year and my smell came back. And I say, okay, if we get your sinus disease under good control, the prognosis is fairly good. You'll have good recovery of your smell loss. Most viruses in the past, we would say if you suddenly lost your smell after a virus, there's fairly good evidence that you're going to get at least some, if not a lot, of your smell loss back within two years. And those things we talked about, smell retraining, topical nasal steroids, maybe omega-3 fatty acids, may help that come back more quickly. Um, So there can be a good prognosis with that. With pituitary surgery, you may get fairly good return by about six months. Um, If it's a huge skull-based tumor, then they probably won't. Is there any sort of follow-up that patients need down the road after treatment? That's a good question. It depends on the etiology. So say they have chronic rhinosinusitis um, and they have smell loss associated with that. You're going to follow them depending on their sinusitis management I think that's one, especially you're tailoring it more towards the sinusitis. I do tell people with olfactory loss who come in that if they want to come back in six months and get another smell test just to see where they're at and see if their olfactory retraining is helping, I do offer that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Let's move on to one of the hot topics, uh, something that has been discussed frequently. We know that olfactory dysfunction has been seen more commonly over the past year as it can be an early symptom of individuals affected by COVID-19. What recommendations do you give patients in clinic who have gone through this? Yeah, that's great and certainly timely. And um, there were a number of ENT groups that, you know, raised the alarm that sudden onset smell loss was one of the first signs and symptoms of COVID, even without other symptoms. And the number of people with COVID who had smell loss, estimates are around 30% of people with COVID had some smell loss at the time of diagnosis. Most people get their smell back within a few weeks or a few months, but we're seeing maybe up to 10% of those people who lost their smell with COVID have ongoing smell dysfunction. And what we're seeing a lot of with COVID is not just decreased sense of smell, but later they will get more parosmias. And as we talked about before, parosmias when smells are altered. So if patients come in and say, It's a month or two after COVID, but now I'm noticing things smell terrible. I used to be able to drink coffee, but it smells terrible. Or I loved pasta, but it tastes disgusting. Or even if I smell it, I feel nauseous. So these parosmias we're seeing a lot more with COVID than we used to see with other olfactory loss. I was doing sort of some brief math. The number of people with COVID who've had COVID in the U.S., I mean, we may see up to like a million people, I think, have some ongoing olfactory loss. So as you said, it's really something that's being seen a lot of and getting a lot of publicity and in the news. The good thing is because there's more awareness about this, there's a lot more discussion. There are some online groups who are providing information on olfactory retraining, which is what we're recommending. One of those online groups is called absent, A-B-S-C-E-N-T dot org. And they've got olfactory retraining. They've also got forums for patients and information about smell loss and management. And people can go on and find other people who have similar symptoms, and that can be helpful. For treatment of post-COVID smell loss, a lot of it is similar to what we've recommended for other um, post-viral smell loss. And there's not a lot of data yet on outcomes. 
but in general, we're recommending olfactory retraining, smell retraining. I'm offering uh, steroid rinses. Again, this is off-label and omega-3 fatty acid supplements. There's some other things that some people are trying, but those three smell training, topical steroid rinses, and omega-3s are, um, I think, the most commonly recommended at this point. We don't have a lot of data on outcomes with those interventions because it's relatively new. Yeah, that makes sense. 30% is a a pretty high number. Uh, Unfortunate that so many patients with COVID-19 have to experience that. Um, but it sounds like there's some great resources out there to help them. And that's and just even talking about it, I think, is helpful, knowing that for a lot of these patients, they're not the only ones going through this. And I wish I could tell them, like, oh, the prognosis for your parosmia for COVID is good. We just don't know yet. But anecdotally, it seems like a lot of people are noticing over time it's getting better. And I hope in the next two years we'll see, hopefully, that this uh, gets better with time, but too soon to tell. Right. I'm sure that's reassuring, but also a lot of potential research opportunities in that area. Absolutely. Well, Dr. O'Brien, this has been a great discussion about olfactory dysfunction. Before I move on to the summary, is there anything else you would like to add about this topic? Yeah, I really appreciate this time, Drew, and and your questions were really great. Just again, if someone comes in with smell loss, you want to get an objective test, like an upset, so you can provide a number and grade the severity of their smell loss. Get a good history. Consider whether you need imaging. Olfactory retraining is super easy, but really important also to reinforce safety, you know, gas leak detectors, smoke detectors, food expiration, and then have a discussion about the impact on their quality of life, depression, and anxiety. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Brien. Thanks a lot. I'll now move on to a brief summary of today's topic. Olfactory dysfunction affects up to 10 million Americans with a prevalence that increases with age. Patients present with complaints of difficulty smelling, but often might not realize that this dysfunction can be dangerous due to an inability to smell certain things such as rotten foods or smoke. Additionally, olfactory dysfunction can decrease quality of life and can be associated with depression. Initial evaluation includes nasal endoscopy and the use of objective olfaction tests, such as the sniff and sticks and the upset. Etiology of olfactory dysfunction can be broadly split into conductive and sensory neural dysfunction. Depending on etiology, additional workup can include imaging with either a CT scan or MRI, depending on the suspicion for the different types of etiologies. Treatment is largely dependent on the etiology If it is caused by a conductive loss, addressing chronic rhinosinusitis with standard treatment such as saline irrigation and nasal steroids with or without surgery can be helpful. For sensory neural loss, olfactory training should be encouraged and topical steroids can be considered. Of course, it is important to remind patients of the safety aspects of olfactory dysfunction, including ensuring smoke detectors are functioning and being mindful of potentially spoiled food. Follow-up is dependent on etiology with an understanding that a vast majority of patients will see an improvement over time. Let's move on to the question and answer portion of this episode. I'll ask a question, then pause for a few seconds to give you time to think about it before I provide the answer. First, define the following terms used when discussing olfactory dysfunction. Normosmia. Normal olfactory function. Hyposmia, quantitatively reduced olfactory function, phantosmia, 
qualitative dysfunction in the absence of an odorant. For example, an odorant is perceived without concurrent stimulus, such as an olfactory hallucination. Parosmia. Qualitative dysfunction in the presence of an odorant, or distorted perception of an odorant stimulus. Hyperosmia. Quantitatively increased ability to smell odors to an abnormal level. This is very rare. Anosmia. Absence of all olfactory function. Quantitatively reduced ability to smell a specific odor. Functional anosmia. Quantitatively reduced olfaction to the extent that the patient has no function that is useful in daily life. Number two, differentiate threshold, identification, and discrimination, and then name two popular tests for olfaction. Threshold is the concentration of odorant where 50% of stimuli are detectable. This does not specifically identify the odor. Discrimination, the ability to differentiate between different odors. Identification, correctly naming a specific odor, which can be done with visual or written cues. Sniff and Sticks is a test that can determine threshold, discrimination, and identification, and the UPSIT is used for identification only. What is the role for imaging in olfactory dysfunction? CT scans can be helpful to identify a conductive loss, such as in the setting of chronic rhinosinusitis. MRIs can be more helpful when a lesion or tumor of the skull base is possible or needs to be excluded. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to sharing more with you soon.